0: Um what we're, um, what we're um, going to do, as, as you know, I, I, I believe that um, God's uh, having a time testing the on the church. Uh, I believe 2023 is going to be a letter, but that we're going to say there's, there's going to be difficult times, and my prayer for all of us is that uh, our faith may be strong so as to cope with whatever challenges might be thrown at us. And one thing practically I thought I could do to help us start the new year in the right way is do... A couple of messages on getting the most out of the bible that um, I think one of the keys to holiness and, and, and which I think is part of god's uh, uh plan for the, for his people is to um, understand the full message of scripture, not just the bits we like, uh, which is often the way things go and I think one of the reasons that is the Christians that don't get the most out of the Bible is not that they they don't want to but it's often we just don't realize how we have to read it. Um, there are parts of the Bible that we just find very difficult to read. And I want to address those and, and hopefully help us to start the new year. And, uh, and since we're in the middle of summer here and the, many of us have, are off work and uh, relaxing, I'm, I'm going to throw up this challenge that uh, you know, over these summer weeks, if you've got some spare time where you would be sitting around the pool or doing things like that, to, you know, to, to really get into the Bible in a, in a, in a new way start the year off in a, in a good way. Um, I'll start with my own experience in a, in a little bit. I can remember the first time I picked up the Bible. Um, it was debatable whether I was a Christian or I, I probably believed in God, but I certainly didn't know God in any way. I was probably about 14. And my brother, was uh, older than me, he went to a religious school and he had a, a Bible on the, on the shelf. So I picked up and started reading it. I started at Genesis and started reading through. As I read it through, I thought, this is a a really good story. You know, lots of sex and violence. I mean, go through the book of Genesis. What else is a young teenage boy interested in? I mean, but obviously I I then got into Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and stuff. Obviously, like most of us, I got stuck when I got to Leviticus. Um, But I I say flippantly that the Bible was a rollicking good story. We laugh, but that's actually part of the the genre of the story. I mean, it was actually meant to be that. Um, We we read these stories and find them fascinating and humanly interesting and a bit outrageous even. Uh, We need to realise that that's actually how they were intended to be. And we need to understand that as part of our experience. So what I'm going to be doing here um, is focusing on... In, the first, in these first two weeks of January, on two important and underread portions of the scripture. The first is what we call the history books, all the ones that basically tell the, tell the history of Israel. And, the, and That's this week, and next week I'll be talking about the prophetic books. Together they make up probably 60 or 70% of the whole scripture. And it's my experience that Christians don't get to read them very often. So let's just commit our time to God. Heavenly Father, we ask that you speak to us and give us keys to hearing from you and understanding your word and uh, and thereby growing in grace and holiness in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Let's start with some general points about how we're supposed to read the Bible. Because, unfortunately, this isn't often taught and of people aren't taught properly how to read the Bible. Often the ways we learn, we, we listen to people that teach us what is actually improper ways of doing it. The thing we need to understand in order to understand how, the, how the, the Bible works is that although it's the word of God, it is also the word of people. Now, we don't believe that the Bible suddenly dropped out of heaven. Form onto earth so that we can pick it up, and that's what it is. Now, interestingly, if if, if we were Muslims or if we were uh, um, Mormons, for example, that is exactly what they do believe about their books. Uh, Both of those groups, I'm not saying that they're true, I'm just saying what they believe, but um, what they believe is that their books were transcribed in heaven and and put down on earth, and in some way they were automatically written so that every syllable, every word has no human element in it whatsoever, it's completely divine. In fact, the, uh, the, the Muslims go so far as to say that uh, it's a, a sacrilege to actually translate their book because by translating it, you obviously change the meaning. So to be a Muslim, you need to actually learn Arabic and read the book in Arabic. We don't believe that. We believe that our message, our word, is God speaking to us, yes, but through the medium of frail human beings. So each book in our Bible was written by human beings, frail, sinful human beings like you and me, who in their particular circumstances, God chose them and used them to speak to us. That's quite an amazing thing to realize, that God actually chose people like you and me to bring his message to the world. What that means, of course, is that we need to understand something about the human element of the story if we are to understand it, if we need to understand what was going on in the lives of the people who, who, who brought this, uh, this message to us, so that we can understand what their perspective is um, based on what their experience is. We all, we all know that if you have different experience, your perspective on that experience changes. So, how do we read the Bible? The general way we have to read the Bible is that we have to, uh, we need to read it or listen to it as the original readers or hearers would have understood it in their own context and in their own experience. So, in other words, we need to take the time to understand what was actually going on, what the original readers, what the original hearers would have understood by the message, and then cross that gap and say, well, okay, given that. Is was that message in that context, what's it say to me in this context? Um, if we don't do that, we're in uh, danger of actually misinterpreting. What that means, of course, is that in order to read it properly, we need to focus on books, whole books, rather than just verses and chapters. So uh, okay, here's the how, to, how to read the Bible. Can we go this one by one or go back a bit? Go back to, to a couple of oh yeah, yeah okay so doing one by so the the steps on how to understand the Bible first of all we need to understand the original context of each book we need to take some time to say well who's writing who were they writing to what was their audience what was happening in their collective experience what were they afraid of what were they, what were they hoping for all of those sorts of questions the second thing we need to do which is very important is underestimated under, under is we need to understand the genre of the literature. Now, genre is a technical term. It basically means what type of writing are we talking about? Are we reading a history account? Are we reading somebody's letter? Um, Are we reading uh, poetry? Are we reading prose? Because all of these things have different uh, contexts and different ways of interpreting. I mean, a classic example of how the Bible gets misinterpreted is you go to the book of Proverbs, for example, and the Book of Proverbs contains a series of, as you would expect, proverbs. Now, what's a proverb? A proverb is not something that works all, all the time, absolutely, right? It's a, a probability statement. It's, 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 it's a statement about how things in general work. So, for example, when it says um, spare the rod and spoil the child, for example, which is in the book of Proverbs or it says, no, a, better, a better example where it says, uh, bring a child up in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. Now that's not a promise. Right? That's not a saying that says that if you are a Christian, you bring your child up as a Christian, then you can absolutely guarantee that every child that you bring up will, be, will stay a Christian for the rest of their lives. We all know life doesn't work that way. Right? What it does mean, though, is it's like a playing the odd statement that's the best way of bringing your kids up to make sure that's most likely to happen. Right? If you don't do that, things will probably go wrong. So it's it's a proverbial statement rather than a promise. And it's important to understand the difference. So you need to understand the genre. Um, we also need to understand, look at the main message in the original context. So don't get sidetracked by side issues that were not relevant to the original Readers, right? That's what we tend to do often. We, we go to the Bible expecting to get answers to our particular questions uh, and of course sometimes the questions that we ask in the 21st century aren't the questions that the people in the 3,000 years ago were asking. And It can be very dangerous to take that attitude to expect to, to find answers to 21st century problems in the writings of, uh, of uh, goat herders and sheep herders from 3,000 years ago. Um, you have to be very careful taking that approach. So having, and, and it's generally best to focus on what the main message of the original passage is and then ask ourselves, what is the message for me today if I understand what, was, what it was saying in those days? How do I cross the gap into my own day? Okay, so that's general how we need to read the Bible um, to get the most out of it. Now, what I'm going to talk about now is the particular books that are our, our, uh, our first week here. The history books. Uh, now, the history books in your Bible are the books consist of most of Genesis, Exodus, uh, not tiny bits of Leviticus, Numbers, and then Joshua all the way through to Second Chronicles and Ezra. So they're books which basically tell the history of ancient Israel. And there's also a history book in the New Testament, the Book of Acts. So it consists of them. I haven't done the adding up, but it's. You know, that, it's about two or three hundred pages out of the Bible, so a substantial portion of the scripture. So, why were these books written? That's the first question we need to ask. First thing we need to do is that they're the bulk of the Old Testament. They talk about God's involvement in the lives of his people over a period of thousands of years. In fact, you may have heard the statement that. History is his story. God is a real God, right? He's involved in your life. He's involved in my life. We know that because He was involved in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, and the whole of Israel throughout their history, and into the New Testament, the lives of the Christians. The history books tell the story of God's involvement. So the, do we have next slide? yeah, yeah. I don't think my uh, transitions worked on my slides, never mind. So, what books? uh, Why were they written? So, they tell the history, right? They tell the story of God's involvement and they provide the context of the rest of the books. So, for example, the laws of God found in uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers really aren't meaningful to us unless we understand what was actually happening at the same time through the book of Genesis and Exodus and at the same period of time. If we just simply take those laws and apply them willy-nilly into our own lives, we're going to misunderstand what was actually going on. We need to understand the history of the context, what was going on. Um, similarly, um, the prophets, which we'll talk about next week, uh, need to be understa- understood in the context of the later history of Israel, with, uh, you know, the people that they were addressing. In fact, you, you can actually correlate the... the writings of the prophets to the books, history books quite easily um, it's quite interesting what do I gain from reading these books that is actually a very interesting question you know what I think is the best the most important thing you gain from reading the history books you get have your worldview transformed you get have your worldview transformed Most of us have read novels, people who understand, read novels, when you read a novel what happens? You put yourself within the story and you find yourself empathising with the character. You know, I'm talking about a good novel, not, not just a paperback trash sort of thing. But, you know, you know, if, you read, if you read quality, quality story, you, you, know, you, you embed yourself in the story and by putting yourself in the story you imagine yourself in that person's situation thinking the way they were thinking, understanding their perspective, and it starts to change your way of looking at life. If that works with an ordinary non fiction story, how much more can that happen with the Word of God? If we take the stories of um, the people of God, if we imagine what it was like to be walking through the desert with Isaac and, and, and Abraham, if we imagine what it was like to be uh, King Hezekiah confronted by... Um, the, the, the marauding armies of Assyria and what we would have done in their situation. You know, if we can do that, then we can start to understand what their perspective on life was and, and how maybe the way we're responding to, to our struggles now our uh, issues is maybe not the best or ways in which we should change. So it becomes very transformational. And, uh, and I think that's, that's to me, is what we gain at it. Question, the other question is, what is the main point? Um, the main point, the, 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 the thing to understand about any history, and um, if you've ever studied history you'll understand this, is that there's no such thing as objective history. Every person that tells a story about what's actually happened is telling it from a viewpoint. Right? The Bible is history written from an inspired viewpoint. So the perspective that we get on that history is God's viewpoint. And that's the main point we need to take out of it. I mean, the I mean, classic example of this is, say, the story of the flood in, um, in Genesis. Right? Now, most of the debate about that story uh, amongst Christians and people these days, you know, debates about... Uh, Focus around issues which really aren't all that important. Like did it actually happen? Was the local flood? Was the global flood? You know how many how many animals were there? How big was the boat? All these sorts of peripheral issues, but the really important issue often gets lost. And the really important issue is found in those amazing words where God says at the end, He says, when He smells the sacrifice that Noah offers, and He says, even though the sin of mankind is terrible, yet I will never again. Destroy the earth—a statement of God's love and grace. That's the perspective that comes out of the story, and that's probably one of the main points in the story of God's love and His forgiveness. It's a—it's a perspective which, actually, thousands of years earlier than it was written, actually talks about the cross because that's exactly the attitude which required God to go to the cross, where He said, "Even though the sin of man is so terrible, I will not destroy them. I'll find another way." So. Focus on the main point of each story. Now, who uh, who was writing? Now, that's an interesting thing. We need to understand about the history books, how they were written. Almost certainly, they were not written in the original form as we have them. Um, It's almost certain that they were what's called oral tradition. Now, the way oral tradition works, uh, we've got to understand that the people who wrote the Bible were not largely literate. Writing was not invented until many years after the original Bible stories. And in societies where literacy is not high, um, we have what's, what they call oral tradition, which is the stories are passed down from generation to generation by word of mouth. Now, that can give you the, the impression that maybe they're not particularly accurate. But the, uh, the research suggests that in cultures where you have this oral tradition, that the, the accuracy of transmission of the stories is actually very high. Because what they, I didn't actually focus on the main point. Because what, what the story, where way, way the stories work, is it's a bit like the best example in our modern culture is a joke, right? Um, when I when I was a parent, I found it fascinating that my kids would come home from school and tell me jokes that I hadn't heard for thirty years. Anyone else had that experience? You know, that, the, the fascinating thing is the jokes are exactly the same. But the, the the joke has been preserved over generations by skilled storytellers, if you want to, skilled joke tellers. Not that every word is the same; the main point is the same. Um, a skilled storyteller changes peripheral details to suit the audience. So, for example, in one context it might be, you know, there was an Englishman, an Irishman, a Welshman. The next one, it might be a if you're in a, in a different country, it might be a Pole, and an Arab and a Jew, or something like that. But the peripheral you know, details uh, get changed, but the main story remains the same, and that's how oral cultures work. And you can easily tell the, the structure of an oral story; they're very simple. There's an initial statement at the front, which is the context. You know, it said, so, you know there was an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Welshman. So you know, the context. Then there's the development of the story. And then there's the punchline at the end, which is the main meaning. Now, of course, we're not talking about funny stories in the Bible. There's we're talking about, but there's still rather than being a punchline, there's a, the, the main point is usually found right at the end of the passage. So, when we read that, it's fairly easy just the main point of each story is found at the end, uh, and, and, and as we read that, we will actually understand. Okay, so that's basically what all I wanted to say. Let's do a, an example. So, we're, we're going to imagine I've got a, a skilled storyteller here. Francine, who's going to come up and read us a story straight out of the out of the horse's mouth. We're going to dim the lights. So we're going to imagine we're around the campfire, and uh, and and here's our skilled storyteller who's going to tell us the story uh, that that, uh, that, uh, that we have. And um, and afterwards, we're going to uh, ask a couple of quick, you know, talk talk briefly about what we've learned and uh, and what we think God was saying. Wait till I sit down.
1: <laughs> after ahab's death moab rebelled against israel now ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in samaria and injured himself so he sent messengers saying to them go and consult Baal-zabub, the god of ekron to see if i will recover from this injury but the angel of the lord said to elijah the tishbite Go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going off to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says, You will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So Elijah went. When the messengers returned to the king, he asked them, Why have you come back? A man came to meet us, they replied, and he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and tell him, This is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending messages to consult baal the god of Ekron? Therefore, you will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. The king asked them, What kind of man was it who came to you and told you this? They replied, He had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. The king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. Then he sent to Elijah a captain with his army of 50 men. The captain went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, Man of God, the king says, Come down. Elijah answered the captain, If I I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then the fire fell from heaven, and consumed the captain and his men. At this, the king sent to Elijah another captain with his fifty men. The captain said to him, Man of God, this is what the king says, Come down at once. If I am a man of God, Elijah replied, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. Then the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed him and his fifty men. So the king sent a third captain with his fifty men. This third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged, Please have respect for my life and the lives of these fifty men, your servants. See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men. But now, have respect for my life. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. He told the king, This is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel for you to consult that you have sent messages to consult Baal-zabob, the God of Ekron? Because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you are relying on. You will certainly die. So he died, according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Because Ahaziah had no son, Joram succeeded him as king in the second year of Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat of Judah. As for all the other events of Ahaziah's reign and what he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Thank you.
0: Now, who likes that story? I think it's a great story. What we need is a bit more... We need we We need to see the fire coming, kind of, you know. And the I mean, just that's like, let's let's talk about this ourselves just quickly. What are some of the things about that story which make it make it seem to us, make make it appear, make it real to us so that this is actually an oral story meant to be read out? What are some of the aspects about that that stand out to you that make you realise that it's you know, one of these oral tradition things rather than just something that was originally written down? What are you what do you what do you about the story, how it how it affects you as you listen to it. Yeah. Repetition. In fact, just like a joke, all the isn't it a joke, there's three characters, right? Because the first two establish the trend, and the third one is the one that delivers the punchline. So you got the first captain is fifty men who's arrogantly says, This is what the king says. And Eliza says, Oh yeah. The second one comes, comes and says the same thing. You know, it's just like the you know, it jokes me. It's the third one that comes with a different attitude that has a different result. So yeah, that's, that's the first thing. And, um, repetition? What, what else do we think? Anything that stands out as, as, you, as you listen to it? Um, there's one thing that we wouldn't be aware of, which is interesting. There's actually a pun in there. Because the Hebrew word for fire is esh, right? and the Hebrew word for man is ish. So essentially, what what it was saying is that Elijah says to the people, "You think I'm an ish? Here's an ish." (laughs) You know. And of course, vowels were very flexible in in the Hebrew language. Okay. So, given the story, what do we think is the main point of that story? as you listen, what's the story actually? If if you're listening to this around the campfire in in Israel, what, what, what do you think was the purpose of the story? Why was, why was it told in this form? Yes? And that's that that's that phrase that's repeated, isn't it? So what, what was the phrase that was repeated that said, Is it because there is no king in Israel that you consult the God of Ekron? Right? So there's a message in there, isn't there, that God is real, that he's powerful, and that you don't need to go outside of Israel to find the answer. You can find it in the God of Israel. And as uh, Roxanne said, God is jealous, and if you go outside of that and go looking for your answers outside of God, God's not going to be very happy about that. Now, translate that point into your, your personal context. What are the issues in your life where you go... Are looking outside of God for answers when maybe you should be looking to God for the answer. I mean, that's how you can apply that into your own life. Is it because there is no God in the church that you have to go to such and such a place to get your answers? All right? And of course, the the main point from the point of view of the of, of the Israelites is found in the last verse, which is that it's a it's based on telling the story of this king, right? so which was it uh, Ahaziah. So it's the, the thing is, it's a story about who Ahaziah was, and it's a, and, and as it says, you, know, you see at the end, this is the main main event of Ahaziah's life. He was a he was a bad guy because he was an idolater. Um, if you want to find the rest of the details, go and consult the annals of the king. But basically, if you want to understand about Ahaziah, this is the story to understand what he was like. So, Ahaziah, bad guy, fell through the lattice, consulted foreign gods, kaboom, He's gone. That's, that's the main. Now, what isn't the main message is the things that we might tend to focus on today. So we might tend to focus on saying, what about the poor men who got blown up by the, by the fire? Maybe they were innocent. Well, maybe they were. We don't know. The story doesn't tell us that. And it certainly wasn't the point of the people who read the story. So it's actually pointless to worry about that because we have no idea what, what, what was going on in their lives, it's a story which is outside of the realms of pretty much idle speculation to worry about that sort of thing. So we focus on the main point and we understand what's going on. So let's finish up what I'm proposing. Here's the challenge if you have time. Read or listen to uh, the books of 1 and 2 Kings. Now, when I looked at my Bible, that's about 60 pages. Now, I'm not saying study every word. I'm saying listen to it. It's about, if you, if you read a novel in your holidays, a novel's about 200 pages, about a third of a novel. Right? I'm simply asking you to read it in the enjoyment sense, in the same way that you would read any story. But ask yourself those sorts of questions right? um, you know, that we talked about. Um, it, it contains the history of Israel from the death of King David until their exile into Babylon, which is a period of about 500 years, about 60 pages long, and to help you in your way, I've prepared a set of questions you might be interested in asking yourself as you read through it, uh, only covering it just one one page and a bit of notes, I've got my email address there. If you would be interested in those, just send me an email and I'll send them to you. They're not, you know, it's not homework time. It's You might ask yourself a completely different set of questions, but they're the sort of questions that I would ask, I ask myself when I read those stories, and they're just, I guess, prompts for you to, to read as... Um, as you read through and to, and to understand what, um, you know, what's going on and, and questions you might think are relevant. Um, as I said, my, my, my purpose is not to promote my own perspective on this, but simply to uh, provoke all of us to actually read and ask the, the sort of questions which will uh, maybe challenge us in, in God for the year. Okay? Let's uh, get some coffee, unless I don't know, there's no songs or anything.